I choose not to want to take that on because it, I recognize it doesn't serve me. And so much of my life has been about unlearning messages that I've internalized from being raised the way I was and where I was and at the time I was, from being a black person in America, a black man in America. There's a lot of overt and subtle messaging that uh, that you have to kind of hear, recognize what it is, and then also recognize that it's not serving. And that's a constant practice too. Mm -hmm. Hi, everybody. My name is Andy Vasley. I'm the host of the Run Your Life podcast series. And I really do want to thank you for taking the time to listen to any episode that you can. If you are a new listener, thanks for taking the chance on this podcast. I'm not sure how you found it, but I hope that you're not disappointed and that you come back to listen to future episodes. And if you are a returning listener, as always, thank you so much. I appreciate the support that you have given me over the years with this podcast series. I can't believe it, but you're about to listen to my 242nd episode. And I feel very lucky over the past eight years to have been able to interview so many amazing people, including Olympic gold medalists, professional athletes, a wide range of leadership experts, best-selling authors, and many more to ultimately share their stories of excellence and how it is they've been able to not only accomplish the great things they've been able to achieve, but to also learn about the guiding principles that have helped them to navigate the ups and downs in their life in a way that still has them achieving their very best. My guest today is right up there with the best of them. His name is Patrick Doer. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, Patrick is a self-taught artist, musician, poet, educator, and spiritual activist. He's played and recorded with Grammy Award winners, including Sade, Chuck D from Public Enemy, and Dan Zanes, as well as many other notables. He is also the drummer of one of the best-selling reggae LPs of all time. He has worked as a teaching artist in New York City public schools, as well an art therapist working with HIV-positive children and as a director of community arts organizations. For more than 20 years, Patrick has used the arts to empower and support the socio-emotional growth and health of at-risk and disenfranchised youth in the city. I first came across Patrick's life story in a short film that was created by South African filmmakers Michael Raimundo and his partner Justine from the Green Renaissance YouTube channel, which is now called Reflections of Life. And I really am a big fan of Michael and Justine's work and highly recommend you follow their YouTube channel as their films are truly amazing. 
After seeing Patrick's film, Justine put me in touch with him so that I could interview him on my own podcast, and for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you, Justine. Patrick's story is not only inspiring, but there are many deep life lessons learned that can be applied to anything you are pursuing in your life. And in today's episode, Patrick and I explore the themes of resilience, purpose, meaning, and hope. As well, we look at specific tools and strategies that can help to deepen well-being and promote stronger mental health in your life. In our episode, Patrick opens up about being 23 years sober and the resilience he has been able to build and put into practice in his life during difficult times. It's a very inspiring story. I highly encourage you to check out the Reflections of Life short film on Patrick's life, which you can find in the show notes of today's episode. As well, you can also find links to Patrick's artwork and his website. I hope you find takeaway value in my episode with Patrick and share this conversation with anyone who you feel will benefit from listening to it. And with that, let's jump right into my episode with the inspiring Patrick Doer. Patrick, it's uh, amazing, truly amazing to be sitting across from you right now via Zoom. Uh, you're in the, are you in the Bronx right now? No, Brooklyn. Oh, Brooklyn. Okay. So you're in Brooklyn. I'm in Saudi Arabia and technology makes it possible to connect. And just for the listeners, I just want to set a bit of context before I ask my opening question to you. But uh, the context is that um, I'm promoting the work of Green Renaissance, the filmmakers from South Africa, now called Reflections on Life. Um, their work is amazing. Some of the listeners may have listened to previous episodes where I've interviewed guests of theirs or in, uh, the filmmaker Michael himself. But really, we're connected because of Justine and Michael and the video they made on your life, which was about 17 minutes long, 18 minutes long which was an extraordinary video. And uh, Justine connected me with you to have this conversation today. So uh, in advance to our conversation, I really want to thank you for your time and energy and your willingness to come on my show, man. Thank you so much, man. It's an honor. Yeah. So to set the context for the discussion, can you just share with the listeners who you are, where you're from, and the work that you have devoted your life to? Hmm. so my name is Patrick Doerr. I was born and raised here in Brooklyn, New York, um, 60 years old. I am a father and a new grandfather. Uh, I have uh, made a lot of art and music in my life. I'm actually an author now, a published author. I have a memoir coming out uh, on Little Brown, uh, set to come out in June of this year. Awesome. Um, so we're in an editing process. It's all, it's all, uh, uh, my life, I guess, if I had to sum it up, the purpose of my life has been about, um, expressing myself as authentically as I can and trying to, um, always connect with the love that I think is, uh, really the the truest meaning of life, the truest, highest purpose of life, you know, but that's taken me through a lot (laughs) <laughs> a lot of different uh I've had a lot of lives in this life um and here I am now 
Yeah, and your video was amazing. And I'll include a link to the video in the show notes. So I highly recommend anybody listening to this after they listen to the podcast, definitely watch the video. It's an 18-minute YouTube video. Again, you'll be able to access it in the show notes. And the one thing I told you that I showed your video last week in a workshop that I was running, and the common consensus was, oh my God, you look great for 60. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You know, I turned 60 and of course, there's there's some vanity attached to it. I try to take care of myself. But, I, you know, I told Michael when he asked me about the video, I was like, man, I really don't like how I look in film. And, and uh, um, so I was I was a little concerned about that. Like I was going to come off as this old crotchety old man. So that's, <laughs> that's really great to hear. Yeah, no, you look awesome. And so I want to begin the discussion by uh, reading a quote of yours, actually, from the video itself. And as I read the quote, I want you to think about what comes up for you and what circumstances in your life might have led you to such a profound understanding about the human experience. So I'm going to read the quote for you. It'll just take a a minute, but I love it. And I think it's a great way to kind of start our conversation. So what you said in the video was, I've been really blessed to have the full range of experiences with people. I've had deep connections with people who are down and out on the so-called lowest rungs of society's ladder. And I've hung out with people that are famous. What we all want is the same thing. And it essentially comes down to these very simple things. Five things. We want to be loved. We want to feel secure. We want to feel healthy and good. We want to feel respected. And we all want to feel that our life has purpose. So when you hear that quote read back to you, what comes up for you and what do you want to share with listeners based on that quote and what you want them to know more about? Well, thank you. And, and uh, thank you for pulling that particular quote. Um, Cause that kind of sums up so much in my life philosophy. That quote comes from a life of uh, walking so many paths and getting to know so many different interesting characters and at some point recognizing that there was a through line um, in all those encounters and all those people. And, and then the introspection of mm-hmm. recognizing that those are the five things that I know I want. The ways I've gone about achieving those five things has not always been wise. Um, sometimes it's been hurtful. And sometimes I've found myself kind of falling off the path. But mm-hmm. recognizing that th- those five things ultimately uh, connect us all and recognizing that if somehow we could all kind of connect and recognize that those things are human in their very nature, undeniably that I think so much uh, of the world's problems could be solved Mm -hmm. just with that simple philosophy. You know, I'll share a quick story. So please, I'm here in I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, and I live in a neighborhood that's uh, transitioning from when I moved here. It was considered a very dis, uh, financially disadvantaged neighborhood, disenfranchised neighborhood. It's a neighborhood of color. It's been transitioning slowly in the ten years that I've been here. Yesterday, I got my bike stolen, and I'm a, I, I have a a lifelong love of bike riding. And this bike that I got stolen that was stolen yesterday. I just, I just started a romance with this bike. 
I just got it recently and I got it tuned up and I've been writing it, getting to know it. And, you know, I wrote it for a while yesterday and, and I was thinking, man, this is this is going to be my new sweetheart. I'm really loving this bike. And uh, and I, I locked it up and I ran in to get a coffee at the corner store that I've done a million times. And someone walked off with it into the housing projects that are across the street. And the housing projects are for, you know, low, low income people. And my uh, my initial philosophy of love and understanding went right out the window. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it, there wasn't a moment's hesitation when I real. it was a surreal moment when I realized, oh, wow, the bike is not there. It was there. Now it's not there. And then recognizing that someone had taken it and, and I ran into the projects which is a very dangerous place with murder on my mind you know and i was after this guy and i was i was ready to do damage and i'm so glad i didn't find him mm. and walking around and yesterday was a beautiful day it was the day after thanksgiving here in america and, and uh walking around in those projects it was quiet and i realized i'm angry at this guy because he violated me mm. by taking my bike but you know Again, that same person was striving for the five things. I'm sure yeah. he thought by taking that bike, he'd find some happiness. He'd find something that would make him feel better. Maybe that's his purpose is to get stuff that he didn't have before. Like I had this moment of like, you know, this, this person is suffering. And that, that moment was grace, you know, and, and the anger dropped. And then I was able to also recognize that my anger was sadness. I was yeah. sad that, that my bike was gone. And I was yeah. sad that someone... Uh, felt that it was necessary to take it. And, you know, the anger became sadness. The sadness became compassion. And I let it go, you know. You so know, there was a lesson in it. Yeah, I was just going to say, if we if we deconstruct that, that's what I, I want to get to the lesson. But also, I'm, if we were to deconstruct that, what I hear in your story is that you have built certain skills and a mindset that has allowed you in a rugged environment, a difficult environment, under pressure, to be able to access your best. And But it's a process. But it's a process. So go on about the lesson. Well, that's it. That's the process. So the initial, my initial response was uh, one that I was raised with, which is you don't allow anybody to take advantage of you. The aggression that comes from, you know, I really, uh, I was really contemplating hurting this person because that's what I was taught. Somebody takes something from you, you hurt them. And the lesson was recognizing, here's an example. This is not a problem. It's a challenge for me to exercise this philosophy that has worked its way into my life. But I know it's a work in progress because mm. if I was totally spiritually on the beam, I would have taken that moment initially and said, oh, this is a this is an unfortunate situation. And there's a person that's suffering that felt that taking my bike was the right thing to do. And I could have let it go in, in that moment. But it took me about an hour of roaming around the projects. And I, you know, I was. Uh, yeah, I was ready to hurt someone and. Uh, to recognize like this is this is a lesson, it's a. It's an unfortunate lesson. It's a painful lesson. It's a loss, but it's also valuable because I don't get to practice this life philosophy yeah. sitting alone in a room. It has to be applied in, in life situations. And 
that was sort of an extreme one, but um, those extreme uh, challenges also the the most uh, profound lessons, you know, because they provide you with opportunities, and and that's where the the good work lies, and that's where the best of us is revealed in those moments. We can read all the books we want about building skills and building a mindfulness practice, but when push comes to shove, you have to take action to be able to put these strategies into action, literally. And I think of what you're saying is like growing up, you learn like it was just a, a guttural response. If somebody violates you, you fight back, you know, That's right. and then you've learned over the years through your deep wisdom and your deep work to create, as John Kabat-Zinn, the mindfulness expert says, between stimulus and response is space. Yes. You create the space. So you were able, it sounds like, through that hour roaming around, you were able to create some sense of space that allowed you to shift your perspective. That's right. And, and then it's an opportunity as well to learn and grow and develop yourself and to continue to transcend your former self, to become That's a better right. version of yourself. And then in the future, you have evidence looking back. Well, you know, I was able to do it that time. That's right. So it's scanning back and looking for the evidence of being a researcher of good in our life and scanning for the evidence that proves that we have what it takes in difficult moments to create that space when we're we're sparked with anger, you know, Absolutely. or we, we're going to have a knee jerk reaction. And I think that story is great to frame up my next question. And in the video, you talked about being raised by an Irish American father and African American mother in a financially disadvantaged family that was played with mental health issues, addiction, uh, mental illness. And when I heard that part, I got a little bit emotional because that's my story. You know, mm. I strongly relate to what you shared. And I mm. have a brother that I lost to uh, drug addiction. Um, he died. The last time I saw him alive was at our wedding in mm. 1999. You met my wife just before we recorded yeah, she's lovely. And he, he went through hell in his life and he was so gifted. He was a gifted musician. He, he made um, custom made guitars for some of the top Canadian rock bands back in the eighties. Uh, amazing guitarist himself. And I lost another brother to suicide. Um, both mm. parents, alcoholics. So I really strongly related to your story. And when you think of the person you were despite going through those things when you were young we can develop strengths and you talked about that idea of being emotionally neglected and being left to your own devices which is neglect but despite the neglect when you reflect back on those years growing up those very sensitive formative years what strengths did you develop at that time young patrick seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, what strengths did you develop that would ultimately go on to serve you so well in your life? Mm. Um, well, thank you for sharing that about yourself. And I I wonder if um, your background and my background has led us to where we are now in the kind of work that you do. Having that, those examples of addiction and mental illness so close mm -hmm. and congratulations on finding uh, the compassion because you could have gone another way too you could become very bitter you know yeah 
And I was, you know, I was for a while, you know, and I think I had, that's part of the process. Yeah. yeah. Very bitter, very, very victim mentality and sure. uh, very jealous of assuming that everybody else around me has such a better life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the word I was looking for in the video that I couldn't find is I, I always describe my upbringing as I was unsupervised. Yeah. Which was a soft way of saying I was neglected. Yeah. Because I didn't like that word. That word sounded like it condemned my parents. Mm -hmm. And even early on, I recognized that my parents were folks trying their best. That they were folks dealing with their own traumas and their own issues of addiction and mental illness. And they 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 tried. And so I didn't like the word neglect because that felt deliberate. Like they de deliberately neglected me. I think they were just busy trying to live uh, and trying to figure their own lives out while raising me and my brothers. I think being, being unsupervised or neglected as a young person, well, it taught me independence for sure. Um, but it also created this void in me where I always felt that I needed affirmation, that I didn't ever feel good enough, mm -hmm. that I didn't feel seen throughout my life. And also, you know, being raised financially disadvantaged made me incredibly resourceful and resilient. Because mm -hmm. um, I had a I had a drive to create, I had a drive to express myself, and I wasn't really supported in that. So I had to find ways on my own to express myself through art and music and writing. So that was your outlet? Absolutely. Yeah. That's where I connect because I, my outlet was, I say American football because I've been outside of Canada, North America for 25 years and you don't call it football here, it's soccer, but I played American football and, and that sport 100% saved my life. Absolutely. There is no question when I reflect back, I taught myself, I was a quarterback and a punter and I had a football in my hands from the time I was 11 to 24 years old, 25 years old. Taught myself to throw the football, punt the football. I played 14 seasons competitively. Even though there were drugs around me and alcohol around me, I never missed a practice because of those things. Like mm. it was my life and there was no way that I was ever going to jeopardize that. And yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask. And, and this is a nice segue because outlets are so critical in our life. And if we don't have the outlets, we can go down. You know, you talk about having a bad playbook. And it sounds yeah. like both you and I had a bad playbook growing up. But yeah. for some reason, call it God intervening in our life. No idea. But for some reason, we had the purpose and the outlet to to find fulfillment and meaning in a in a purpose greater than us. And for Absolutely. me, it was team sport that got me through so many difficult moments and built a brotherhood with my teammates, like dear friends to this day. So continue with your story and the positive outlets that you had in your life that allowed mm -hmm. you to, to escape the dysfunction. You know, I, I can identify with the team sports and, and like throwing yourself whole, wholeheartedly into into uh in your case playing football or me music you know there's the there's the i think there's the aspect of um finding a family outside of your family mm -hmm, yeah community outside of your your family um you know with me it was music and bands my bands were my family you know mm -hmm. 
Um, what age I was did, that, Patrick, when you really first started getting into playing in bands? I was, uh, I think, my 17th or 18th birthday, my girlfriend at the time bought me a drum set awesome. for my birthday. Cool. And uh, <laughs> and my best friend at the time, we were posers, you know, we walk around like we were rock stars. We dressed the part and acted the part, but we couldn't play an instrument. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and my girlfriend and my best friend's girlfriends were also best friends. And I think they, uh, and our birthdays uh, were very close. They were like a couple of weeks apart. <laughs> and so our girlfriends conspired to buy him a bass and me a drum set so that we could awesome. actually play instead of just looking like we were in the clash, you know? Okay. And uh, so that was around 17 or 18. And that, that was, that was my f- football, you know, for you that, mm-hmm. that became my, um, my focus, my chosen family. Um, and it sounds like you were good at it too. Malcolm Gladwell, famous author, wrote the book Outliers, where he talks about the 10,000 hour rule, right? That's right. And there's no question I put in 10,000 hours of passing a football, throwing and punting a football that, you know, led to me playing university elite level. I was super passionate about it. Yeah, Um, me too. Yeah. So then your outlet and your creativity, uh, because you're an artist as well, and and I'll share the link to your um, artwork, which is amazing. I I love the the cans with the art on them. Yeah, Yeah. really cool. So I hope that the listeners will check out your artwork and they can see that online. But yeah, continue to talk about that sense of creativity and purpose. And yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to, again, the blessing and curse of being raised the way I was. I, uh, at 17 or 18, when I got that drum set and I, I found my thing, I, um, you know, I became that, that kid that was in his room, or in my case, it was the basement of our home, you know, playing around the clock. I'm sure I drove the neighbors crazy, yeah. but I didn't mind missing out on all the social things that were going on for an 18 year old. You know, I was fine being alone, practicing. Um, studying my music, I'm, I'm, all these uh, artistic mediums that I have been blessed to um, have throughout my life. I've, you know, I've been self-taught. So learning that instrument and even learning techniques for painting and creating art has all, all been a, a self-taught journey. And, and I think if I didn't if I didn't have the upbringing that taught me that, you know, you have to figure it out on your own. You know, you have yeah. to, if you want something, you have to get it yourself because you're not yeah. going to be supported. So like, yeah, I put in those hours for sure. And it paid off. You know, I became a really good, I think a really good drummer and musician. And yeah, you played with some really well-known musicians. Are you yeah. allowed to say who? Can you, can you share? Yeah, sure. I, um, I did a little bit with Sade, played a bit with Peter Tosh. I played on this album called Dub Side of the Moon, which is a reggae version of, um, the Pink Floyd album that awesome. I think it's one of the top selling reggae albums of all time. Awesome. Um, yeah. And a few other Grammy winners that I've gotten close to over the years. It's just mind blowing in itself, but none of that would have happened if I, if I didn't put in those, how many hours? 10,000? 10, 10,000. That's what they yeah. say. You know, he, what's interesting about that is Malcolm Gladwell, when he he wrote that book, the person, the psychologist who did this study was from Sweden, Anders Ericsson. 
And Anders Ericsson was a bit pissed off at Gladwell for not interviewing him about the 10,000 hour rule, because what he found out later was that it's not actually 10,000 hours. If you are very purposeful and deliberate in your practice and your technique training, that you can achieve mastery in, say, 5,000 hours, 6,000 hours, but it can also take 20,000 hours. So Anders Ericsson was a bit upset that Malcolm Gladwell like was so hard and fast with this 10,000 hour rule. But generally, yeah, 10,000 hours on average. Um, yeah, you imagine all the hours and hours and hours in your basement and all the repetitions, right? I but imagine know. imagine if uh, if you set a you know a clock and said, okay, I'm going to be a great quarterback. And to do that, I need to put in 10,000 hours. And you're working against that clock. I don't think that would work. I think maybe I put in 10,000 hours or more simply because uh, it was my passion and my love. I felt intrinsically motivated. I was. But if I was doing sort of the, I don't know, capitalist thing of like, okay, now I've got 10,000 hours that, and at the end of this 10,000 hours, I will be a great drummer. I don't think that would have worked. No way. No, no right? absolutely not. One of the things I did, if I can just share a quick story, because I, it's bringing up, sparking some memories from my childhood when I was teaching myself how to punt, which would have been in the uh, early 80s, where there was no internet and you got books from the library. I'd take books out on the top NFL punters. And then I learned all, the, took the world almanac and looked at all the statistics from the American punters in the NFL. And then what I did was, I knew that I had to figure out my punting average, right? So I literally like would create with sticks or whatever, the stones, a line of scrimmage on the road. And then I paced off the NFL average, which at the time was about 44 yards a punt, right? And then I would drop down some sticks down there. And then I I knew that I had to line up 14 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And then that was always my measurement. How close could I kick to the NFL, punt to the NFL average? And I remember when I was 12 and 13, not even close. But by the time I was 15, 16, I could kick some, probably not as much hang time, but I could kick the distance. And then I started to learn how to, but it was all creativity. And then I would would keep data on every punt and do my punting average and and as you say, I'm not thinking 10,000 hours. I'm thinking, oh my God, I love this shit. This is what drives me. This and, is what, right? Yeah, and and the challenging yourself, and you know, reaching your own goals, like yeah. creating your own goals and, and reaching them, and and uh, and also, I was thinking, you know, football, and for me, drums, the physical component to it, like there's a therapy in banging on drums. You know, absolutely. there's an absolute therapy in kicking the ball or throwing the ball. Is the physical release. That I think was also therapeutic because I had a lot of built up angst and rage and and anger. And I I know that, you know, three hours playing the drums, I would definitely feel physically drained, which would also make me feel calm and centered, you know. Yeah, beautiful. And when you think about your life, who was a person in your life who saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself? Who was the first person in your life? It might have been your parents. Who knows? Uh, who was the first person in your in your life that saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself, mm. and what kind of impact did that have on you at the time? You know, when I was twelve, I think I was 
couple of weeks from turning 13, going into my last year of junior high school, which is a very pivotal year, because that's that's sort of the year where you you find your your click, like you're going to be a, a jock or you're going to be a stoner or a nerd. Or, and I uh, I broke my leg right the day before school started. And it was a severe break. I was riding a bike trying to show off for this girl. And uh, I had to take that school year off. Holy shit. And during that school year, so I was alone. On top of being sort of neglected in general, that year I was really left to my own devices because I, I didn't even have the social outlet of going to school. But there was this one kid that lived up the block. He, to me, he was a grown-up, but he was probably only 19. And it was a hippie kid. He just kind of took me under his wing. And for that year, he was just my like my cheerleader. And he'd drop off music for me to listen to. He bought me art supplies. We had a lot of talks about philosophy. And right. it was just one of those guys that was like, you know, you, you're all right, kid. You're, you're on to something. Uh, and he might have been the first person to, like, see me. Yeah. And recognize that there was some potential in me and then also encourage it. We also smoked a ton of weed. Yeah. Which helps <laughs> with the, some of the it totally you know, helps discussions. <laughs> absolutely. And it's and it's a there's a therapy in that. But you know, later I addiction and alcoholism is part of my story too. I've been sober by the grace of God for twenty three years. But oh, beautiful. Good for at you. that point, that was the golden era of experimenting with drugs and alcohol because it was really about that those kind of deep conversations and um listening to music and so he might have been the first person to really uh see a potential in me and then encourage me to to continue on making music or i wasn't making music at, at that point but i was appreciating music and um and art yeah, that's great. And you, and in the video, you talk about this beautiful concept of I see you and you see me and we see yeah. each other and yeah. we we connect. And what I, I loved, it really like, again, like it really brought up some emotion for me, but it was this idea of where you talk about when you open yourself up to another person, one of two things can happen. Either they re they're repelled by it because they can't meet you where they're at. They're incapable yeah. of meeting you where you're at, or they can drop the facade and say, this person really gets it. They see me yeah. for who I am. And that's that deep connection piece. And it sounds like that is what you had in this person who saw you, who recognized yeah. you, who gave you some, some meaning and um, helped you see that in yourself. Right. For sure. For sure. And, you know, all along I was being taught and learning lessons in the most kind of organic way. Mm -hmm. And I've had tons of uh, teachers and gurus along the way. And most of them are, you know, I call them angels with dirty faces or exquisite misfits. Like a lot of the lessons that I've gotten have come from very unconventional places like this hippie kid. Or mm -hmm. when I say that I hung out with people on the lowest rungs of society those are those are the folks that have taught me probably the most about living really you know mm -hmm. and about about surviving and about being resourceful and strong and life lessons that are not found in any philosophy book or even any religion you know like tried and true ways of living and getting the most out of life you know 
Yeah, and that's that idea of openness to experience. And when we shut ourselves off to those possibilities, then you don't know what is possible. And a perfect example for me, I was always a connector. And then I found for a number of years, I wasn't a connector anymore. Maybe I became more introverted. I'm not sure what happened, but I was always somebody that took the risk to connect with others. And it was during COVID, we flew back to Canada and it was the summer where, you know, you had to do two weeks of quarantine and get tested and in order to leave quarantine. So the day that we did the final test and we were cleared, my son and I, my oldest son um, is passionate about golf. We went to the local golf course. We were renting an Airbnb. So we're the golf course is right there. We're on the driving range. And then all of a sudden there's this guy beside me and he's hitting balls. And then he's kind of watching me like golf is a passion of mine too. I played competitively for years, love the game. And he was like, Oh man, you got a good swing. Are you a pro? And I just kind of laughed. I was like, no, no. At one time I wanted to be, but no, no, I'm not a pro. And so we got talking and then he was like, yeah, I work here. You know, I'm a painter, have my painting business. I work here. I volunteer to pick up golf balls on the range and I get a free membership. So you want to join me sometime, you and your son for golf? And I was like, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so then we played a few times and in our last round, he brought his friend who joined us. And then the friend was a firefighter, former world competitive mountain bike racer. So we had this amazing discussion on the golf course and we really connected and I opened myself up to that experience and Mm. didn't know the guy. We had a couple beers and then we had such deep connection that at the end I was like, Hey man, you got WhatsApp. Let's, let's stay in touch. Mm. Turns out four months later, he took a plane to Saudi, came to see us, spent two weeks with us and we're super close now. And I'm wow. like, if I didn't take the chance to connect, his name is Justin Brown. If I didn't take the chance to connect with him and open myself up to him and yeah. be vulnerable and share and him be vulnerable and share, then that is a relationship that I would never have experienced in my life. And now he's such right. a good friend to my son, to our family. And that's a perfect example of taking the chance to connect. And one of two things can happen. Like you say, they'll repel you or that you will connect on a deep level with them. And I want to share a a quote with you from, it's one of my favorite quotes, and it's about life narrative, how we create these narratives. And I think personal narrative is hugely important in our life. We can create uh, narratives that are disempowering, or we can choose to create empowering narratives. The quote is from Dr. Jim Lair. He's a performance psychologist. And what he says is the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller and the stories we tell ourselves create our reality. So when you hear that quote, what comes up for you when you think about how your own personal narrative continues to change and evolve over time to become much more empowering. Mm. That's a great quote. And that that's, um, I think I spoke a little bit about it in the video about this idea of recognizing our worth and the fact that we're limitless. The interesting thing about that, that internal voice is that it speaks to you in your own voice. So, you know, it's like <laughs> I said to myself, there are two people in that. There's the I and the self. 
And so it's the idea of cultivating the witness so I can hear the voice, which sounds like my voice, but recognize that it's not necessarily giving me information that I need. So I, I can hear it, not condemn it, thank it for sharing and say, that doesn't serve me right now. That, that way of thinking doesn't serve me. And I appreciate the input. Thank you for sharing. I choose not to want to take that on because it, I recognize it doesn't serve me. And so much of my life has been about unlearning messages that I've internalized from being raised the way I was and where I was and at the time I was, from being a Black person in America, a Black man in America. There's a lot of overt and subtle messaging that uh, that you have to kind of hear, recognize what it is, and then also recognize that it's not serving. And that's a constant practice too, mm-hmm. and a constant learning. And mindfulness, literally cultivating the witness and mind, mindfulness, recognizing that the mind, you know, is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. Yeah. So I can hear my mind think and think that it's, it's giving me messages that it's thinking or survival techniques or that are for my benefit, but they don't serve my higher growth. They don't serve my higher self. I can accept them for what they are, but realize I don't need to follow them. So even yesterday, walking into projects, uh, I had a mindful moment when I'm looking for this guy and um, I'm hearing birds chirp and leaves fall. And I thought, this is the moment. So like what I said in the video, it's like, this is the moment right here. This is the message I choose now is to be here in this moment with the birds and the falling leaves, as opposed to what my mind is telling me, which is go kick that guy's ass, you know, go, go cause him bodily damage because he's violated and disrespected your manhood by stealing your bike. I had a choice. So again, it was like, I heard, my mind tell me from lessons that it's learned that the proper uh, reaction is to go beat up this guy and get my bike. This guy was obviously suffering because if you steal a bike, you're not in a good place, you know, but having the mindfulness to stop, change my perspective, hear the thought, recognize it for what it is and choose instead to be like, no, I think I'd rather appreciate the chirping birds and the falling leaves and go on home, man, and get something to eat and, Stay in the solution. There was a problem created by my bike being stolen. I'm not going to fix the problem by beating up someone. Uh, so let me go figure out where I can get another bike for as cheap as I can, you know, and um, chalk it up as a lesson and an opportunity to, to recognize my own spiritual growth. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, when you talked about in the video, the beginning part and seeing the sun kind of shine through the leaves and the branches and very start of the video, you talk about that and you're saying it's amazing. And you're looking around. Does anybody else see this? Like I'm seeing this just beautiful light shine through the trees. And that is literally this idea. Have you heard of the concept of glimmers and glows? It reminded me of glimmers and glows when I heard you say that. So what it is, is this idea, a glimmer is just the fleeting moment of beauty that we fail to recognize. That's what exactly what you said, that when our eyes are not open and we're not focused on what's happening around us and we're caught up in stories in our heads and everything that's going wrong, we fail to recognize 
the the glimmers of beauty. And actually pausing to recognize that can change our neurochemistry in our brain. It, it literally will release neurochemicals that yeah. make us feel good. And that's what you so eloquently described at the start of the video. So you're describing that again yesterday in the projects, you yeah. know, hearing the leaves fall and, and th that's a glimmer and capturing the glimmer can recalibrate us and reset our neurochemistry, literally. Mm -hmm. And that's what you did. And that was an act that you chose because you know that works. Yeah. So that's a skill that you carry with you in your toolkit. And there's yeah. so many people out there who, who struggle with anxiety and, and anger issues and the world is changing and the world is uncertain and volatile. You know that these are tools to go to. It's yeah. not just fluffy bullshit. It's actually recognizing it in the moment and it changes our neurochemistry. And then the opposite end is a glow. And that's basking in a moment for a longer period of time that's amazing. So it might be like a hike and you're in deep flow in a hike and it's not a glimmer. It's like you're experiencing this for two or three hours, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So glows are sometimes hard to capture because we don't have the time to get to that place, but we can actively choose the glimmers in our life. And that's yeah. such a beautiful story. And, and look at the consequences of what could have happened that's had right. you been overtaken by your evolutionary instinct to yeah. protect yourself. No good would yeah. come from that. No. So you were able in that moment to choose strategies that allowed you, uh, that you know work, and strategies that you have worked really hard to develop within yourself. And there's a quote here that I can read to you, if a man makes peace with himself, he can make peace with the world. There you go. Right? That's it. That's it. And, it, you know, I, I like when you said uh, it's not fluffy shit, because it isn't. It's the path of the warrior. It's the courage that it takes to drop the uh, the testosterone, <laughs> yeah. to drop the messages of, like you said, the society and, and also our human, I don't know, DNA or lineage yeah. of like protect, fight and flight, to yeah. drop that and connect to the softness. And, you know, that glow, I get that glow when I can appreciate beauty, That right? When you stay in the place of recognizing beauty, I'm sure it raises some dopamine or serotonin. Oh, for sure it does. I used to yeah. try to get it with alcohol and drugs. I wanted the quick fix, you know. I yeah. wanted to stay in that glow place by using chemicals that I thought would get me there quickly without the courage that it takes to drop this man toxic masculinity. You know, you if you if you play team sports, I'm sure you got a lot of that. Like you cannot express sensitivity. You can't express softness because that's looked on as, you know, uh, less than manly. But that really is where it, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Yeah. Much more courage than being like, you know, I'm going to no, kick absolutely. that guy's ass. That's easy. Yeah. 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 The, the really hard work is to forgive. In the moment. When it In counts. the moment. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that came up for me when you were sharing that story about looking for your bike yesterday, I, I don't know if you've heard of George Mumford. Have you heard of George Mumford? I have. Yeah. So George was on my podcast a couple months ago. Wow. What a brilliant, brilliant human. His latest best-selling book, Unlocked, he came on to talk about that, but we talked about his life. We probably 
talked for an hour before the podcast and we talked for about 90 minutes on the podcast and about 15 or 20 minutes after and we're connected on whatsapp now and he always sends me these beautiful messages these these poems and and what george talks about is this um be the eye of the hurricane Mm -hmm. so develop so when he was coaching kobe bryant and michael jordan you know he was with phil jackson for eight nba championships three in chicago five in uh, la and he taught michael and kobe in particular this concept of be the eye of the hurricane so when all the shit is swirling around you when the stakes are the highest you're able to slow the game down and be at your best and rise to the occasion and that's mindfulness right total mindfulness but what george talks about is this concept of velcro gloves and what you talked about is that idea of the anger, the frustration uh, with having your bike stolen is almost like in that moment, attaching yourself Velcro gloves to that, that it's stuck mm-hmm. to you, right? Mm-hmm. And George is saying, drop the gloves. Mm-hmm. Or a success, you know, when you were a drummer and you played these amazing gigs with thousands of people watching the high from that, and then letting that define who you are as part of your identity. Again, Velcro gloves, pulling yeah. it in. And that's what Kobe really uh, embraced was it didn't matter if Kobe scored 60 points or 20 points. He learned to just be instead of attaching himself to outcomes or to feelings. So what you did in that moment is you recognized that part of yourself that shows up, that anger, to sit alongside of it, not push it away, not pull it in. But to recognize that part, and that part does serve a purpose. But as you said before, it's like, I see you. I know you're there to protect me ultimately, but I don't need you right now. And what I talk about when I coach athletes is this idea of you recognize when the imposter syndrome shows up or whatever, but you can put it in the stands. You're allowed to watch the game from the stands. That's I don't right. need you on the field with me, helping right. you make the make the calls, right? That's right. So there's a lot of strategies and metaphors we can we can use, but sure. George George Mumford uses that idea of Velcro gloves and being the eye of the hurricane and how you can develop a mindfulness practice. Because yesterday was the hurricane at first. That's right. And then suddenly you were able to center yourself and recalibrate and put yourself into the eye to remain calm which opens up your capacity to make the best choices. And that's wisdom. Yeah. That's, that's really wisdom in practice, you know, and George also talks a lot about the flow state. Yeah, totally. Right. That's a big part of his. I have a good friend who's studying with him right now. That's how he came into my, that's how I heard of him at first. Oh, the mindful Um, athlete course, maybe. Right. Exactly. So this friend is an athlete who's studying with him so that he can, uh, kind of follow in his footsteps and do similar work. But a lot of what he's been telling me about George's work is this idea of the flow state. And mm-hmm. and you don't get the flow state without letting go. Yeah. Right? You have to, yeah. in that flow state, like watching Jordan or Kobe in their prime or any really outstanding athlete, you recognize that they're not thinking in that moment. They're flowing. No. Yeah. They're, they're letting go of of the thought process and literally following this flow state that just opens up all kind of possibilities. You know, that's the limitless state. 
Yeah. And that's what you talked about in the, in the video. And one of the things about being in flow, they've done a lot of research and what they have found, there was a research study that was amazing uh, with musicians. So I think you'll appreciate this. Um, I'll share it with you because it's fascinating and it's about jazz musicians and how they are in such incredible flow when they're improvising. So right. there was a researcher, his name's Charles Lim. I think he was from Stanford or one of the, maybe Harvard, but what he was a, a musician himself, a jazz musician. And he did his PhD on how people get into flow states and what's actually happening in the brain. So he was able to take jazz musicians. They built this special MRI. So you imagine a jazz musician being able to sit down mm. in a chair in an MRI Mm. and start just doing your thing whatever the instrument is and then they were registering it in the mri looking at what was happening in the brain and they saw it was replicated the study over and over and what they found was that when people were in deepest flow states the prefrontal cortex was shut off lights mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. and the prefrontal cortex contains our judging mind our, our self-criticizing mind. So yeah. in those moments of deepest flow, the prefrontal cortex shuts down. So the judging mind shuts down and is no longer evaluating our actions. Therefore, right. we can just be, right? Isn't that right. fascinating? So It's amazing. Yeah, so when, when you think of being in flow as a drummer, thinking back to those uh, moments of in incredible rhythm and flow where time ceases to exist, and it's almost as if you are not the drummer, somebody else is doing it, right? That's right, that's right. Um, that's what's happening. Yeah. So now it's building the skill to be able to be present and to shut down the judging mind. So how does that resonate with you and your work as a painter and a musician? I hear that as that judging mind is ego. Yeah. Whenever I'm attaching to ego, I'm not in the flow state because I'm so concerned with that, the judging. I'm so working from the mind as, a, as opposed from inspiration, which is in spirit. So when I can shut down the ego and I'm not working from self so much as uh, from self as, as I, I being the bigger I, mm. that's when all possible, that's when, that's when the beauty happens. You know, yeah. I, I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen yourself in footage playing and you throw the perfect pass and you know that while that was happening, there was no ego. Nothing. There was, there was a sense of flow that just so naturally happened because if ego steps in immediately, you're judging, uh, the distance, you're judging the person that the receiver, you're judging the crowd is watching. How do I look while I'm throwing this? Yeah. And you're completely out of the moment. Yeah. And that happens when uh, I cannot create art or music from an ego place. It's impossible. It has to come from um, an egoless place, a non-judgmental place. Now, after the fact, I can look back at the art or the music and judge it and, you know, rate it and kind of put it on the scale that appeases my ego or, or works from that place. But in the moment of creating art, in the moment of a drum solo, I can't imagine in the middle of a drum solo starting to think, okay, the next thing I'm going to play is this, because that's going to sound great. It, it would absolutely you're lost. throw off. Right. You're, you're lost. You're, you're, you're projecting into the future. And that's the ego. 
Yeah. Yeah. Project so, or ruminating about the past. Or ruminating about the past. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. it's about being completely in the moment, egoless in the moment, and being a channel for inspiration, uh, which cannot come if my ego's in the way. My ego completely blocks that. And I think meditation is a very, really, a meditation practice, so important. And so what does your meditation practice look like now? I, I meditate first thing in the morning, 20 minutes to a half hour. Just simple Single breathing. point or contemplation? contemplative not contemplation because that's also very important but different my my meditation practice is more about emptying and so just coming back to the breath recognizing that my mind is always going to my mind is the the squirrel you know so it's always going to be jumping around but but just coming back to the breath i don't know how or why it works so well in you know, I don't meditate for any particular purpose. I don't meditate because I, I think it's going to make me a better person or elevate me anything. I just meditate because it feels right. And um, the result is I get to have that pause in my life. Like yesterday, I keep going back to this metaphor yeah. of the bike being stolen. I don't think if I if I didn't have a meditation practice, I think I would have continued in that place of aggression and anger. Mm-hmm. But having the, that moment, that pause of recognizing, I can hear my thoughts again. Your meditation allows me to recognize my thoughts and see them as just that, thoughts. Without judgment, they're just thoughts. They don't have uh, control over me until I uh, make them an action. Right. And so when I'm sitting still, I can have, I can have you know, I, this morning I sat in meditation and I found myself thinking about all the ways I can hurt this guy. Yeah. <laughs> a day later i'm still i'm still <laughs> contemplating how i'm gonna damage this dude and i heard the thought and i was able to laugh at it because it's ridiculous yeah i let it go yeah i don't have to act on it yeah and that's the choice that's the conscious choice that you're making is yeah you know it's there but you don't have to act on it just before it was segueing to a close i, I want to talk about your spiritual practice and was this like a slow mm, with some people, they have like a transformative experience in their life that reshapes their direction. So it's literally a single pivot point. With other mm-hmm. people, it's just a slow burn kind of thing where they become more spiritual. And can you just share your spiritual practice and how that came to be? Maybe it was always I think, there. I think it was always there. I think I was always searching for it. Yeah. Um and I think I, I searched for it through music and art, you know, and and I did martial arts for some time as well. And I was also I felt a spiritual practice. Definitely through drugs and alcohol, I was searching for it. I think the moment if I did have anything like a white light moment, it was hitting the bottom with alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the morning that that I surrendered and accepted the idea that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. I uh, I was homeless and I was staying in a recording studio, sleeping on the roof. And I I had my last drink of alcohol that morning. And I realized it was it. That was it. There was no gray area. I was going to continue drinking and drugging and die or something had to change. And I sat on the roof. It was 98 degrees. I never forget. It was like the hottest day in July. 
And I sat on the roof in the sun, praying to this thing that I didn't have any relationship with and saying, please help me, I give up. Like a mantra, please help me, I give up. Please help me, I give up. And if if there was any white light moment, it was that. It was that complete surrender to something that I had no name for, that I had no relationship with, but I knew that it was the last hope because I couldn't do it myself. And I surrendered to that something. And um, man, I'll tell you, I had drank and drugged every day. I didn't miss a day for almost 24 years. And after that moment, the next day, I had no desire to drink or drug. It left me um, with that surrender. And um, recognizing that that could only happen because of the intervention of something greater than myself really started me on this journey more consciously to connect to that power. Yeah, I just want to say what George Mumford says is like he was a heroin addict for 17 years. Exactly. And what he says is when you would finally admit you're powerless, that's when you gain all the power back. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. And that's what you did. It's a it's a weird like paradox, right? Yeah. Like you surrender to win. You uh, admit you're powerless to become powerful. Yeah. I didn't realize that in that moment that that was what was happening. I was literally fighting for my life. But in that completely open state, when you're literally like, you know, if you imagine you're drowning and you're, you've, they say like when you're drowning, you come up three times, the third time, if you don't, if you're not saved, you're going to drown and you're up for that third time. That complete surrender moment is where that, that spiritual awakening happens. George talked about that idea of like, he knew he had to get clean. He was starting to get sepsis and infections and going to the hospital and they knew that he was an addict and, and then he was able to um, go to 21 days of rehab and then walk out of there back to his home uh, in Boston and see the streets clearly for the first time in 18 years, he said. And then he was working a high level job. He'd sound like he was, he was very intelligent. He was very good with numbers and he had a, a national security job for a telecommunications company. And after he got his first paycheck, after being clean for like 28 days, he had an intense desire to use because yeah. he had always used his paycheck to go buy heroin. So, yeah. and he shot up heroin every day, you know, yeah. had a national security job at work. So yep. he goes to the stall where he shot up heroin every day for years. And he just recites the, um, grand, the, the yeah, the serenity yeah. prayer. Yeah. yeah. And it, over and over and over, like you did with, you know, just mm-hmm. praying for help and until the craving ceased and then he was able to walk away. So he's been clean 39 years. Yeah. He's, he's a great, powerful example of that surrender. As we segue to to a close, I want to share a story with you and then, you know, ask the last question that I want the listeners to be able to find out more about you in terms of where they can find you on social media and your website and all of that. Okay. So the the story, quick story I want to share with you is from Denzel Washington. He did a commencement speech at a big university and he talked about the ghosts of unfulfilled potential. And it's a beautiful story. And 
he was telling the the students this story to get them as a provocation to get them to really think about the legacy that they want to leave. And he said, imagine yourself on your deathbed and you're surrounded by the ghosts of unfulfilled potential. And these ghosts are angry and pissed off at you and frustrated because they gave you strengths that you never acted on, talents mm. that you didn't fulfill, uh, mm. dreams you never pursued. And they're angry and upset. And now they're going to go to the grave with you. Yeah. And what he said is, rather you want to live your life in a way where you know absolutely there are no ghosts of unfulfilled potential at the end of your life. Mm. So when you think of that story, if you were to project forward to the end of your life, which is hopefully decades from now, mm. but what evidence will you have behind you that indicates that you have none of those ghosts surrounding you when it's your time? Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's always such an important thing to think about because that's really like the summation of your life. You know, what kind of life have I lived? Have I lived a life of purpose? Who, who is it I'm trying to think the novel? I think it's a Tolstoy novel where the character at the very end of the book is dying. And the question he asks is what if my whole life was worthless? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And what a like that has got to be the definition of hell. Like yeah. if that's your last thought, what if my whole life was a waste? I feel like my life has definitely been interesting, full of surprises. Like I said in the video, it's been it's been a full ride and there's a lot more to come, I hope. I, I congratulate myself on showing up and I let go of the results. So in other words, I I, I think I'm responsible for saying yes and whatever comes of that yes is the beautiful surprise of life. So if on my dying bed, I'm thinking about the ghosts, what I would say to them is, hey, I said yes to y'all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did my best to say yes. Whenever you guys showed up, I said, come on and bring it. Let's go. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and it's a beautiful, naive way to, I think, you know, children are like that. And I, I talk about that in the video, connecting to that childhood nature, watching kids play and Kids are just always kind of like, yeah, whatever. Let's try that. Let's go there. Let's do that. Um, just for the sake of doing it. They have the fullest, most enjoyable days because they're just saying yes to life all the time, you know? Yeah. And and then and you learn and you experience and you uh you get surprised and you get your your knees scraped and all kind of wonderful things can happen when you say yes. So I just want to continue saying yes, you know. Yeah, beautiful. So where can the uh, listeners find you? Uh, can you tell us uh, social media, uh, website? Sure. So uh, the website is www.godbodyart.com. One word, that's where my art is. Uh, Instagram is uh, Patrick Dorr, at Patrick Dorr. And I think Facebook too. Those are probably the two biggest places to find my art kind of what i've been up to okay awesome uh patrick thank you so much for your time man it's been a Andy, great it's been conversation a pleasure, man. thank you so much your honor and so great to meet you and your lovely wife yeah thank you i'm going to close off the show and then we'll just uh say goodbye so everybody thank you very much for listening to this episode with patrick doer and i hope you come back to listen to future episodes
now But you will not know everything When the water's spilling over the bow You'll still have me in the wings You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again Like she's made the gold After all she brought you here And if you're lost go see the ocean It will always help you steer Someday you will be stronger than you are now But you will not know everything Spilling over the bow You'll still have me in the wind You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again I still won't know everything But when I'm passing up and over the clouds I hope that you'll have learned from me Someday you will be stronger than you are now But you will not know everything And when the water's spilling over the bow You'll still have me in the wings You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get up to get 